Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is Cal Rastiala, and I'm really pleased to have as our guest on the podcast today, uh, Professor David Sloss, who is the Sutro Professor of Law at Santa Clara Law School here in California. And David is the author of a relatively new book just out in, uh, in April called Tyrants on Twitter, Protecting Democracies from Information Warfare. Certainly a timely topic, important topic. And uh, I invited David on the podcast to talk about the book and get into some of the issues, uh, which I think uh, you'll find interesting. So, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really important uh, issue or set of issues that you address in the book. And uh, we'll get into some of the details and your proposals, uh, but maybe just... Uh, give the uh, listeners a kind of capsule summary of what you are trying to accomplish with this book. What's I've sort of mentioned the the topic, and you know, obviously, social media is embedded in in the title. But tell us uh, the gist of your book. Yeah, so the book really uh, consists of two parts. The first part is examining the problem, and the second part is at least trying to come up with solutions. So the problem I'm focusing on specifically is uh, the use of information warfare by both Russia and China to undermine democracies and promote autocracy uh, around the world. Uh, So I link their use of information warfare to the trends that we've been observing now for almost a decade where we've seen a decline in the percentage of democracies in the world and an increase in the percentage of uh, autocracies. And information warfare can be defined in a variety of ways, but I focus primarily, although not exclusively, on social media as the sort of means for conducting uh, information warfare. Uh, And so uh, the book goes into quite a bit of detail looking at separately at China and Russia and how they are exploiting social media and other information technologies uh, to conduct information warfare. Uh, And then, as I said, part two of the book really goes into uh, solutions. And in particular, I'm looking for uh, transnational cooperation among liberal democracies to regulate social media to protect democracy. So that's the core idea here. Terrific, terrific. So I want to get into uh, both the kind of phenomenon that the problem that you are uh, addressing, which uh, you know I share the concern about, I think probably everybody does, uh, but then also the, the proposals. But just as a kind of question of scope, um, you know, you focus on social media, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc. Um, but do you see legacy media, traditional media, uh, as a vector for information warfare as well? And just that's a kind of different project? Or how do you see that fitting in? Uh, yeah, traditional media is also a vector for information warfare, for sure. In fact, if you look at Uh, work that's been done looking at the spread of disinformation in the United States. Uh, There's a great book by a group of scholars at Harvard called Network Propaganda, uh, which really shows that it's the 
sort of interplay between uh, legacy media and social media that amplifies the spread of uh, misinformation and disinformation. And we can see some similar studies from other countries, but when we look globally around the world, frankly, there's not a whole lot of good work that's been done that looks at what are the relative contributions of social media versus uh, legacy media. Uh, but I think to get a uh, you know, complete picture of the problem, you have to look at the interplay between the two, although the book really tries to hone in on social media, in part because I think the appropriate regulatory responses really differ for social media than for legacy media. I'm skeptical about trying to regulate legacy media on a transnational basis, but I think to get at social media, you have to look at regulation on a transnational basis just because of the nature of the technology. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one of the you know signal features of social media is that there, it's not that there are zero gatekeepers, but uh, the gatekeeping function that traditionally was played by you know editors choosing stories to appear on the front page or the you know the back of the paper or not at all, uh, that's all sort of gone. Uh, and there's a kind of, you know, direct, uh, you know, interaction between uh, authors, let's call them, and, you know, and readers or listeners. And so it does seem like we're in a very different world. And you make that uh, point right in the beginning that, you know, I think many of us viewed, I'm personally not a big social media user, but, you know, I think a lot of people did view it as this great thing. And we've certainly seen the kind of dark uh, underbelly now for many years. And so so your book does an important job of showing how that developed and kind of where it's going and what ideally what we can do about it. Um, so let's get let's get into the scope of the problem. I, I think um, one thing I should flag up front is it's interesting, you know, your background uh, as someone with a lot of arms control experience plays a role in how you think about this problem um, and 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 how how you address it. Um, so maybe before we talk about specifics with Russia and China, uh, you know, how did your arms control negotiation experience uh, shape the writing of this book and the way you think about the problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So, um, you know, when I was working on uh, arms control negotiations in my prior career, uh, a lot of the question was, or a lot of the focus was on sort of uh, what we call red teaming for verification, thinking about, well, if we put this verification measure in place, what can they do to circumvent that? And then what you know can we do in response to that to prevent them from circumventing that? So I applied that kind of thinking to social media because a lot of the problem that we saw from the 2016 presidential you know, uh, election in the United States was the Russians setting up these fake accounts. And if you think about what to do about fake accounts, any measure that we adopt to sort of limit the use of fake accounts, they can find ways to circumvent it. So then you get into this sort of back and forth exercise and thinking about, well, if we do X, they do Y to circumvent it, what can we do to defeat that? And I really tried to apply that type of thinking 
to uh, get into how do we really solve the problem in a way, look, you can never prevent circumvention, but what you can do is sort of minimize circumvention, make it harder and more costly for them to circumvent whatever system you set up. And so that was really my approach in trying to think through solutions for the problem. Great, great. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And uh, obviously, especially actually relevant or maybe like a, you know, logical map on to the Russian side of things. But you, as you mentioned earlier, you focus in the book on Russia and China primarily. Um, and you talk about uh, kind of the rise of uh, digital authoritarianism. And maybe let's start with Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, Russia and, and the US elections, I think is, is probably the most salient example in most people's minds. Um, how do Russia and China differ? What What's Russia doing today? Um, you know, give us a kind of sense of the Russian approach to this and or the threat posed by Russia. Yeah, well, actually, let me let me just start with the question you posed about how do Russia and China differ, because I think mm -hmm. that's an important thing to get at. Um, so there's a quote that I like from a former uh, NSC official who said that uh, Russia is a hurricane and China is climate change. And I think that quote nicely captures the differences between them. Russia's approach to information warfare is primarily negative and destructive. They're clearly using information warfare to undermine democracy, undermine NATO and the European Union in particular. Uh, and uh, I would say they were having a fair amount of success with that, with that before the war in Ukraine, although the war in Ukraine has changed that calculus a fair amount. Uh, China, on the other hand, is really taking a more long-term view. China wants to reshape the international order. Uh, and, you know, whereas the United States for a long time was trying to make the world safe for democracy, I think China to some extent is trying to make the world safe for autocracy. Uh, and uh, so, so uh, China has uh, a more positive vision of a kind of international order it would like to see and is using information warfare to promote that vision. So I think that's a fundamental difference between the two. Whereas Russia just benefits from chaos or disorder, is that the idea that, uh, you know, China has, as you say, a positive vision, they have a different sort of order they want to see achieved, whereas Russia's just uh, trying to stay afloat and so more disorder is better? Uh, I'm not sure that more disorder is better, but certainly Russia has a very strong interest in weakening NATO, weakening the European Union, weakening uh, the democracies in those countries. Russia has actually devoted a lot of resources to supporting far-right parties in Europe on the theory that those far-right parties in Europe will actually uh, help advance uh, Russia's foreign policy goals by, uh, by uh, weakening NATO and weakening uh, the EU, right? But it, that's not much of a positive vision. It's more of a let's tear down what's there rather than building up something different. Right, right. Okay. So sort of burn it all down rather than a kind of more incremental approach. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So uh, China, you, you, you kind of contrasted as, I mean, I like that metaphor of climate change versus a uh, hurricane. I hadn't heard that. It's, I think that sounds, um, that sounds right uh, in that China tends to take a long view on a lot of things. 
uh, and and is really shaping uh, or attempting to shape a very different sort of order. What would that Chinese order look like? So you said sort of safer autocracy, but what would be the role of China has its own social media ecosystem, of course. Um, What would be the role of social media uh, or just media period uh, in that Chinese order? Well, uh, one key thing is that um, China wants to use and is using, right, China is, let's start with domestically, China is domestically using information technology for uh, essentially surveillance and control, right? Information technology helps them keep a handle on their own population. And they're sort of exporting that surveillance and control model to uh, other countries around the world. I don't think China wants to sort of, uh, you know, take over the world. China is perfectly content to see, you know, uh, uh, liberal democracies remain in the United States and Western Europe. But to the extent that they can promote a more autocratic model in uh, Asia, Africa, Latin America, uh, they're trying to do that. And information technology is a part of that because uh, they can uh, essentially, by exporting information technology, help strengthen, uh, help other countries to strengthen autocratic control at home. And social media is a piece of this. There are actually um, uh, a few different Chinese technology companies that have developed sophisticated tools for essentially using social media for surveillance and control. So they append these tools to Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, and either the Chinese government itself can use these tools to sort of monitor what's going on in social media or uh, make those, uh, make that technology available to other countries so that other uh, governments with autocratic leanings can do that. Yeah, let's turn to, to your proposal, which I think relates a little bit to what you just described in a, I guess in a kind of negative sense, as I understood it, which is your, um, your proposal, your regulatory proposal, uh, isn't necessarily going to change anything you just described inside China. That's not the goal. Right. Um, the goal is really to protect uh, democracies from these kind of baleful influences um, from from external actors. Uh, is that a fair uh, reading? Yeah, that's right. It really does focus on protecting existing democracies. It's certainly not designed to sort of uh, influence uh, what's going on domestically in China and Russia. Okay, good. So, so you characterize your uh, your proposal as a kind of uh, transnational regulation uh, of social media, um, and I want to get into some of the details because this is obviously the most kind of uh, up till now we've kind of been talking in general foreign policy terms, but right. you know here we kind of get more into what would a legal regime look like, a regulatory regime. What are some of the some of the concrete proposals and maybe you know some of the challenges that they would face. Um, but one thing you note is, or you, you propose, is a rule that would uh, prohibit uh, Chinese and Russian or maybe maybe any foreign agent um, from using accounts on social media for, uh, for these purposes. So how would that work in practice? And just spell that out a little more for us. Right. Okay. So the basic proposal is to uh, ban from social media platforms anyone who's acting as an agent of 
the Russian government, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. This could be extended to other bad actors like Iran and North Korea, but I really focus in the book on uh, China and Russia. Uh, and so in order to ban them, you have to know who they are. And in order to figure out who they are, I propose a registration system. And the registration system is... Uh, uh, you know, controversial, I recognize, but the basic idea of the registration system is that anybody who wants to operate a public account on social media, and I draw a distinction between public and private accounts, anybody who wants to operate a public account on social media has to uh, register, declare their nationality, and provide certain identifying information. So that, for example, if I say, I'm a French citizen. I am handing over enough information so that uh, Facebook can go to the French government and say, hey, is there really a French, uh, French citizen with this name and this identifying information? And that would be applied up front at, these, at the stage of uh, sort of creating an account. And this, would, this kind of registration system would effectively allow the social media companies to block, you know, 99% of the fake accounts up front. Uh, it wouldn't be foolproof. There would be ways around it. But that's the sort of principal mechanism for determining because, you know, if the, that way, uh, let me just say that it, what, what the Russians did in 2016, which was really effective, is set up accounts where they pretended to be Americans. So this would make it almost impossible for them to set up accounts in which they assume the identity of an American because that would be screened up front in the account registration process. Okay. So... So it seems like it would have two chief effects. One, uh, the many millions, tens of millions, I don't know, hundreds of millions of bot accounts would be would be eliminated uh, because it'd have to be a real person behind every account, regardless of nationality, a real person. Uh, so that would be one effect. And, and that's, a, that's a positive effect in your account because uh, bots are such a, um, you know, important tool in the kind of Russian arsenal in particular. Uh, and then the second effect would be to make clear who's speaking. In other words, uh, you were just talking about Russians impersonating Americans. Um, we would know uh, whether the account that says David Sloss uh, is an account of an American citizen or a Russian citizen. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, Facebook would know that. Facebook so, would know. Uh, so, so two things. One is... I wouldn't actually eliminate bots altogether, but I would require that bot accounts be registered as bot accounts. There are some actually positive uses for uh, bot accounts, but uh, but those but the bot accounts would be identified as such, and as you said, they would be linked to a real person so that Twitter or Facebook knows who's operating that account. Right, uh, that's one point. I also I think it's very important for be, people to be able to speak anonymously on social media. There's actually constitutional protection in the United States, as you know, for the right to speak anonymously. So I would allow people to speak anonymously, but they would be anonymous to everybody else on the platform. They would not be anonymous to. Um, certain people within the company who would who would essentially there you'd have to have somebody in the companies who would be able to link a pseudonym to a 
real name. So uh, you can't register anonymously, but you can appear anonymously if you choose to do so. I see. I see. So, I mean, I can imagine that will be controversial, uh, if only because, of course, these companies can and will be hacked at some point, And that information probably isn't totally uh, safe if you're concerned about your anonymity. Um, but but on the other hand, the current system isn't totally safe either. And so, um, you know, I suppose that's that's the kind of balancing that would have to uh, be engaged in when we think about these these proposals. Um, so can I, can I just yeah, go ahead. About go ahead. That? I, I mean, I do recommend a number of measures to protect that identifying information. Uh, but one of those one of those measures would be uh, data hashing. Uh, and data hashing basically allows you to store data in a way that um, essentially, even if someone hacks into the system, they wouldn't be able to uh, link uh, a pseudonym to, uh, to a user's actual identity. Right. So there are measures you can take that, that make that obviously nothing is perfect, but there are measures you can take that make that uh, information very secure. But to clarify, within, let's say, Facebook, uh, certainly someone at Facebook, maybe many people at Facebook would be able to draw that connection that there is David Sloss, uh, an American citizen residing in San Jose, California, behind the account that is named David Sloss. Uh Right. There would have to be people in Facebook who would be able to make that connection, but you could limit that to a relatively small number of people in Facebook on a sort of a need-to-know basis. Gotcha. Okay. Um, let's keep going on some of the... There's, you know, there's multi, mul multiple prongs to your proposal, and we won't be able to get into all of it, but I think that's uh, in some ways the most interesting part of this book is thinking about what can we do. Um, and... Uh, another element is uh, what you describe as kind of a disclaimer regime um, that, um, uh, you know, if there's an election related message coming from someone outside of the United States, or I guess a non-citizen, is that the idea? So a, a non-citizen, who, who would be subject to this disclaimer? So, so the the book proposes what I call uh, an alliance for democracy, which would consist of about 30, 35 or 40 states that are liberal democracies. So let's just say France is a liberal democracy. It's part of the alliance. Venezuela is not a liberal democracy. It's not part of the alliance. Essentially, what that means is French citizens can comment on U.S. elections with no restrictions whatsoever. So it's not a limit on foreigners, but Venezuelan citizens who wanna comment on US elections, uh, their posts on Facebook or Twitter would be accompanied by a disclaimer. The company would be required to attach this disclaimer. And it might say something like, this comment is coming from a citizen or national of a non-democratic country, something like that. So that would provide a warning to you and me when we're seeing stuff on social media that, hey, this is not, not just that it's coming from a foreigner, but it's coming from somebody who's not a citizen or national of a democratic country. What about a Venezuelan uh, refugee living here or France? Okay, so a Venezuelan refugee living in the United States would have the option of registering as a U.S. national when they set up an account on Facebook. And as long as they are a uh, legal 
Uh, I can't remember now whether I said legal resident or legal permanent resident uh, in the proposal. I have to go back and look at that. But let's just say legal permanent resident can certainly register as a U.S. national on Facebook and essentially claim that nationality by virtue of being a legal permanent resident here. Okay. So there's a kind of a who you are question, but then also where you are might uh, might shift the uh, the results a little bit. Right. Uh, but the basic idea is that within democratic polities, uh, it's perfectly fine to opine on elections here or in other uh, democracies. Um, but it's sort of we're going to keep it within the family in that sense. Uh, and um, and anyone else would be a, they would still be able to comment. Is that right? But they would just be there would be a disclaimer uh, that this person is, uh, you know, is is Russian or uh, residing in Russia or something to that effect. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay, great. So I know we have a, only a little bit of time left, but I want to just get into very briefly the issues around the First Amendment that are probably in the minds of certainly many uh, American listeners, um, but also have, you know, have some resonance in even international human rights instruments and others where free expression is is protected in various ways. So what are the chief challenges in terms of free expression? So either at the international level, uh, with regard to human rights instruments or the First Amendment, which is something you uh, you devote a fair amount of time to in the book. Right. Well, uh, I think uh, that just, just to be clear, uh, all citizens and nationals of states that are members of the Alliance for Democracy would have essentially unrestricted free speech on social media. Right. So I think that's important. Um, the uh, From a First Amendment standpoint, probably the most controversial thing is banning Chinese and Russian nationals from uh, social media. Not, not China, I shouldn't say nationals, Chinese and Russian state agents, right? So Chinese and Russian nationals would be allowed on social media as long as they're not acting as state agents. That obviously presents a implementation problem. How do you decide who's a state agent? I deal with that at some length in the book. But those who are acting as state agents would be banned from social media. I'm sure that would be challenged on First Amendment grounds. I think it's very defensible on First Amendment grounds. Uh, but um, but uh, I can't guarantee how the court would rule on that. And it presents similar challenges in other countries. I did have one uh, German professor I know who I talked to about the proposal who thought that might also present constitutional problems uh, in Germany. Um, the other thing, though, that may be actually more of a concern, uh, you know, but personally, I have no problem with saying the First Amendment allows us to ban Chinese and Russian state agents from uh, social media. I think the bigger First Amendment concern in some ways is what chilling effect does this have on everybody else, right? Uh, if if uh, the ordinary social media user is worried that the registration system essentially allows the government to spy on them, then when they're given an option to register either a private account or a public account, they may decide, well, I'm just going to register a private account so that way I don't have to register. I've set up a private account. That way I don't have to register, provide identifying information, and therefore I'm not worried about the government spying on me. So if the result of this system is it drives a whole lot of people from public accounts to private accounts, that really does have a big chilling effect on speech on social media, 
I would be concerned about that. And I think that uh, that is going to depend a lot on uh, being able to sort of sell these ideas to not just the American public, but to the public in other countries to convince them that uh, registering and handing over this information is not going to become a tool for government spying. Interesting. And so what about... You know, I'm thinking back to, I think it was Thurgood Marshall who had that quote about uh, the freedom to speak and the freedom to hear being two sides of a coin. Uh, you know, so far you sort of focused on free expression and the right of the speaker. But, you know, what if I want to hear what uh, Russian agents you have to say? Um, what about that aspect of the First Amendment? Yeah, so the, uh, the First Amendment clearly protects the rights of listeners as well as speakers. Um, what uh, One thing I would say about that is that uh, there are lots of alternative avenues available where I can hear what, you know, I want to know what RT has to say about, you know, some subject, right? RT is a Russian state media company. Right. Uh, RT, uh, you know, uh, I can get information from RT uh, just by going onto the RT website. I can find, uh, you know, find stuff there. I can actually watch RT broadcasts on television, on radio. There are lots of alternative channels of communication that uh, don't involve social media. And the advantage of those is that stuff there is sort of clearly labeled, right? So if I go to the RT website, I know exactly what I'm getting on the RT website. Um, now, I do have something in the proposal that uh, provides an exemption for benign state agents. So if we decide that RT is a benign state agent, I don't think it is, but but somebody would have the authority to decide that RT is a benign state agent. If, if they decide that, then RT would actually be allowed on social media under that uh, exemption, right? And similar things for the Chinese state media companies. Uh, so uh, it doesn't, the key point here is it doesn't prevent us from hearing what the Chinese government or the Russian government or Russian or Chinese media companies are saying. Uh, it just uh, shuts off one avenue for communication there, but doesn't prevent us from hearing what it is that they're saying. Okay. Okay. But it might block us from hearing some individuals, uh, maybe not institutions like or firms like RT, is that yes. right? Or yeah, and that, and I think that's essential because what we're what we've seen is the individual accounts tend to operate covertly, right? Uh, well, those individual accounts are useful for the Chinese and Russian governments only insofar as the people operating those accounts are not identified as agents of the state or agents of the Communist Party. Uh, so that's the most important stuff to block off because that's the most deceptive, right? Uh, and I can't see any good reason why we should allow uh, agents of uh, the Chinese or Russian government or agents of the uh, Communist Party to appear covertly on social media and spread messages where people don't even know that that message is actually coming from the government. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that concern. Um, I guess one final question about kind of the mechanics of, of, of this proposal. So uh, if a private account, let's say, or a, or a disclaimed account uh, coming from a non-democracy 
says something false about an election here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I pick it up. And on my public account, you know, I'm an American citizen residing in California. I start to spread that out. And then, of course, there's kind of a, you know, ripple effect. Maybe it gets spread far and wide. Um, Is there any way that your proposal addresses that dynamic? Yeah, so the disclaimer basically stays with the message. So let's say somebody from Venezuela posts something on social media, making some claim about, uh, uh, you know, Joseph Biden, who's running for re-election in the 2024 election. Uh, That would have a disclaimer attached to it because the person is from Venezuela. That disclaimer would then follow the message as long as that message, that original message is sort of shared or retweeted, something like that. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply if you, if you read it and then you just come up with your own original message. You're not copying and pasting. You're not retweeting. You're just repeating the information you as an American right. citizen are putting it out there. Then the disclaimer is not going to apply, right? But but if you're if you're sharing or retweeting that original post. Um, then, then the disclaimers follows it along. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And you know, I think looking forward, we haven't seen. Uh, we started to see deep fakes as uh, you know a real issue, but I think we're just seeing the beginning of that phenomenon. And you know, while it certainly um, you know remains to be seen how powerful the impact will be of you know videos that are you know utterly bogus, but you know widely shared. It seems like your proposal would at least take a step towards addressing some of those, some of those things. Um, okay, well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, I urge listeners to take a look uh, uh, at the book and and to buy it and read it. Again, it's Tyrants on Twitter: Protecting Democracies from Information Warfare. Um, David, any last points you want to make about uh, about the book or your argument? Uh, no, I would just say that the book is also available as an audio book. So those of you who prefer to listen rather than read, uh, you can uh, buy the book as an audio book and listen to it. Great. Are you the reader of the audio book? I am not the reader. The company hired a professional actor to read it, which I'm sure is much better, does a much better job than I would do reading my own book. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, I didn't realize that. So that's that's an interesting, uh, very 2022 twist on book publishing. So uh, thanks again, David, for coming on. And I hope we have you back on the podcast soon. All right. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye.